0: For me, the value of working there was really thinking about my children, making sure that their histories are included in educational spaces, not just uh, in the classroom, but also in other museums uh, and in the books that are coming out, you know, and all of these types of things. I started to really think very, very heavily about that.
1: After an elective course in world music led him to follow the drum beat to performing, Chris Newell, Dartmouth 96, ended up leaving college early to tour. The music unlocked more than just new venues, though, and set him up to be a caretaker of his people's heritage and story. Find out how sometimes cutting one journey short can uncover the road to both your past and your future on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. So today I'm here with Chris Newell, and he's going to tell us a story about coming to Dartmouth, leaving Dartmouth, and being connected with Dartmouth through, I think, mission more than anything, but maybe we'll we'll uncover other ways. So Chris, nice to have you with us today.
0: Hi, how are you, Leslie? Nice to be here.
1: So I tend to start these with a question that I'm going to slightly tweak for you. Tell me a little bit about how you got to Dartmouth and during your time at Dartmouth, who were you?
0: So I got to Dartmouth from uh, my community, Madokbegok, which is an uh, in English Indian township located in Washington County, Maine, a small Passamaquoddy reservation, uh, isolated area. But uh, I was always a good high school student and uh, spent my summers actually in a program called MS Squared, which takes place at Phillips Andover because um, it's uh, math and science for minority students, uh, three summers there. You know, so I really put a lot of extra effort into trying to find my way into, uh, you know, the the school of my dreams and in a way. Uh, And I was able to apply to several uh, MIT, Brown, but uh, you know, after I visited the campus, I knew Dartmouth was the right place for me.
1: Yeah. And I read somewhere in your bio that while you were at Dartmouth, you were also substitute teaching. Is that true?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. During my off time when I would go home uh, or, uh, you know, the, the terms when I wasn't on campus. If, if the school year was happening at the time, then I was uh, substitute teaching at the school at home. So I've always been involved in education, uh, something that I grew into because my father made a career out of education, especially uh, the, the crossroads between uh, how to teach Paso culture, language, music within not just the cultural context, but also in the school context.
1: Yeah. And so bringing in that both education and music, were you doing Native music at Dartmouth? Like, would we have seen you at Pow Wow and that sort of thing?
0: So, yeah, interestingly enough, myself and a few other students, uh, Woody Vanderhoop, he was in 96, uh, Sean Adekai in 95, uh, Sonny Baker, he was also 95, uh, and, and uh, several others. Uh, we started the Intertribal Drum Group there, um, Occampan Singers. That's where I got into powwow singing. I, I grew up learning to sing Paso traditional music, which is a far cry from powwow music. Uh, the, the beat pattern is, is actually completely opposite, but uh, powwow is something that a lot of other tribes especially Western tribes, have adopted and it's spread basically throughout Indian country. And I just fell in love with the music right away of the big drum, kind of picked it up fairly quickly, uh, you know, singing with uh, my my good friends. Uh, And, you know, those connections that I made around that drum, I I still have connections with those people to this day.
1: Yeah. And that's the point of it, right, is to bring community together and kind of pass on traditions and stories and all of that. So tell me a little bit about your Dartmouth time and how it it. It was shorter than most of ours.
0: So, yeah, I originally started as uh, an engineering major, you know, math, uh, calculus, took uh, physics thirteen, fourteen 14 with D'Lo Mook, you know, made it through. Um, but as I spent my time there, um, you know, one of the things that changed my direction, I think, was taking an elective course. I took a world music course with Ted Levin, uh, Music 4. And that particular course, I was exposed to music from around the world. Uh, Ted is just an amazing teacher, uh, just really out, out of the box amazing. Uh, you know, I got to see Hun Hurtu when uh, Tuvan throat singing was unknown to Western world or the Americas. Uh, that was when they were being brought to the Americas. And now, you know, it's, it's, it's being used, you know, by uh, around the country, around the world. Uh, even rock bands, uh, you know, are, are using that overtone, that Tuvan style of throat singing. So uh, it really seeing that music in live in person, you know, from these various cultures uh, affected me greatly. It, It actually got really into my heart and soul, so my direction changed from my love for math and science, which never really dissipated, but um, I started to grow a, a stronger love for music. And that's really where, you know, kind of the pairing of my time with Occam Pond Singers took place. Uh, and then from there, uh, you know, we were performing uh, around the campus uh, at student events, you know, and of course, at the Dartmouth Pow we were singing for there. Uh, we started to travel around to some of the local college powwows. We had a great connection with the University of Massachusetts. So had a powwow. And from there, I got to know the, you know, the powwow community, uh, the, the native people that participate in, in the local powwows in the area. And there was a drum group called the Mystic River Singers who were uh, made up of, you know, some of the, you know, really great singers, uh, most of them from uh, Fort Berthold area, some from Minneapolis uh, and other places. Uh, and they had kind of come together at the Mashantucket Reservation during, uh, you know, the, the, the early days of Foxwoods and started an intertribal uh, powwow drum group group. And uh, I love their style of singing. Uh, They sing an an older style. From there, I I started to sit in with them and eventually got invited with them. So when my path finally diverged from Dartmouth, it really diverged into music. And I became a Mystic River singer full time and and traveled the US and Canada, um, you know, close to 20 years, Uh, even got to travel internationally once uh, to Hong Kong. The greatest part about it was that uh, I got an education that you couldn't get in a classroom i work in the field of museum education specifically working with native histories and now working with my own tribe's histories i got to spend time in native communities all across the u.s and canada see beyond the powwow culture which once again is kind of a, a new pan-indian culture that are, originates with uh, one set of tribes and kind of has been adopted by a lot of tribes so i got to see the actual communities uh, and how they operate how uh, you know the uh, the families operate and how, more importantly, how they educate the general public about themselves when it came to the, the world of education. And I was able to learn firsthand uh, from first-person perspective a lot of things that just would not have been in a book, you know, learning how to treat it properly with respect, uh, the knowledge that I was learning, and also understanding what uh, the community teaches to the public and what the community doesn't teach to the public. And those are very, you know, that's part of the respect. I was able to adopt uh, a lot of those teachings into once again, the the native histories from my own community. Uh, Eventually found my way into the museum world of all places.
1: Right, right. So you were able to finish up at UConn, right? Um, Your bachelor's?
0: Yeah, so my, my bachelor's at UConn is actually fairly recent. It took me a while. Uh, I had, you know, 18-year-old credits from from Dartmouth College when I got back into college. So not all of my credits would transfer. By the time I finished, that was December of 2014. So it's really actually fairly recent that I finally finished my bachelor's. And I was a part-time student for many years. But yeah, eventually uh, I became a UConn graduate where, uh, you know, it it started to all converge is uh, when I finally got my degree. I was working at the Pequot Museum, uh, doing quite well there. There was a temporary closure for a while. And uh, when it reopened, uh, there was a need for somebody to head the education department. My wife is tuck at Pequot. So I've been living in that community, Singing with Mystic River Singers, you know, in and around the community for over 20 years, um, well-versed on their history and had already previously worked at the museum. So I was willing to step in and take on that role uh, as education supervisor for their museum, their tribal museum, which is the Pequot Museum. And if you've never been there, it's the the world's largest tribal museum. It's a 305,000 square foot building with 85,000 square feet of exhibit space. So it's a, a tremendous gem of a facility that teaches Mashantucket Pequot history. You know, for me, the value of working there was really thinking about my children uh, who, you know, enrolled with the Mashantucket Pequot tribe, making sure that their histories are included uh, in educational spaces, not just uh, in the classroom, but also in other museums, in uh, in the books that are coming out, you know, and all of these types of things. I started to really think very, very heavily about that, and I started to diverge from just being a museum educator, just, you know, running tours or things of that sort. It's actually much more than that. You have to create an experience for a visitor that has impact. Uh, It really comes down to some skill uh, and how you're able to relate to your audience, because your audience goes anywhere from kindergarten kids to lifelong learners, college professors, uh, high school kids. I mean, and they all react differently. And so you have to be able to present the information on any audience's level, which was the great part about it for me. Uh, I got to work with education and work with just multiple audiences, just a a vast multitude, um, probably over 70,000 guests uh, that my department was taking care of the group experience for. And that involved classroom uh, education projects uh, that involved sometimes outreach programming, you know, so I, I had to be really versatile. I was able to, you know, take what I learned from it and start to branch out from there
1: as a consequence of all those skills and your you know the vast number of things you've probably had to do then you got the opportunity to do that and more for your own community Right. Yeah, uh,
0: that's the amazing part. Uh, I, you know, uh, currently I am the executive director uh, and senior partner to Wabanaki Nations for the Abbey Museum in Bar Harbor, Maine. The Abbey Museum is a Smithsonian affiliate that teaches and, and specializes in Wabanaki history, uh, Wabanaki being the northeastern tribes of Maine and the Maritimes, Vermont, New Hampshire, Quebec. To today, it's uh, five tribes, Passamaquoddy, Penobscot, Mi'kmaq, Maliseet, and Abenaki. So those tribes collectively have known uh, under that term, Wabanaki, which would translate as people of the dawn. So, you know, Passamaquoddy people, we are one of those tribes, and uh, I am now the head of this museum, and we're the only Smithsonian affiliate in the state of Maine. You know, so I find myself in a really unique position here uh, in that, as far as I know, uh, um, because the Smithsonian affiliates doesn't keep track of demographics, but as far as I know, I'm the only. Native American executive director of a non-tribal Smithsonian affiliate museum. For the museum, which the last several years specialized in a a process of decolonizing the way they teach history, you know, prior to my arrival, which means not necessarily centering uh, the archaeology and the anthropology voices, but actually centering the Wabanaki voices and anthropology and archaeology are used to uh, support. It's a different mode of thinking where uh, Wabanaki people control the narratives, their their own narratives in a museum museum that teaches about, uh, but it's not a tribal uh, museum. So when they hired me, uh, they changed the the title from president, CEO, to executive director and senior partner to Wabanaki Nations. That shows that it's not just checking a box, putting me here. Really, uh, half of my job, and I take it very, very seriously, is that the Abbey Museum must have a constant presence uh, with the Native communities in the state of Maine. For the best to come out of that position, it would require somebody from the communities. You know, based on the museum experience that I had with the Pequot Museum, And then branching outward with a a business partnership that I have with some folks uh, that I started called Agamot Educational Initiative. We began working with a lot of larger museums in Southern New England, mostly Boston, uh, the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, uh, the Leventhal Map Center, the Boston Public Library, and started also with colleges. UConn uh, was one of the first, Connecticut College, Quinnipiac University, any place where uh, native content needed to be or uh, was already. We were helping to incorporate it in a culturally competent fashion. Uh, We were drawing the bridges between these institutions and their local communities and making those connections happen, doing some very good work with some exhibits. And uh, so I had a, you know, kind of a really varied uh, museum experience from uh, curation to writing captions to, you know, uh, the education part, which I specialized in. And not to mention, I have uh, partners that also have kind of offsetting uh, museum special skills as well. So We've been very impactful in Southern New England. We started in 2018 and basically uh, we got so busy that we had to start saying no to projects. But based off the the combined work of my years at the Pequot Museum and Agamon Educational Initiative and the need for a partner to the Wabanaki Nations at the Abbey Museum, the uh, board chose me unanimously to come here uh, in March of this year. Yeah, I mean, it's been a crazy road to find myself here. I find myself extremely fortunate because um, the reason why I've had so much success in the world of education, especially museum education, is because of my passion for it. When I was at the Pequot Museum, it's because it's my children's history and I wanted a better world for them. But now that I'm back home in uh, Wabanaki territory, working with a museum that specializes in my tribe and my Uh, neighbors, tribes, histories, I get to really uh, work uh, on a personal level. So for me, being here, it's really not work. You know, I get to do what I love and I get paid for it. You know, that's uh, what, what a tremendous gift. You know that I've been given, but I also understand the responsibility because I'm I'm also the first one to be in this position. You know, so my road getting here took you know a lot longer. Uh, You know, I spent a lot of time, you know, especially on the road as a singer. You don't make a whole lot of money sleeping on couches and and things of that sort. Uh, But here I am now back in my homelands You know, running a museum I love uh, in an area of the state which is a vacation area, and I'm able to provide for my family and make a living age doing so. It took me a lot longer to get here, but here I am. And uh, what a wonderful place to be right now.
1: Yeah. And the board of the Abbey definitely sought out your skills and your community building and your heritage and everything you know about that. But that wasn't the first time that you'd been kind of sought after as um, all of those things put together. So talk to me about Dawnland, which <laughs> I am so excited about it and I can't wait to tell people about it and make them go watch it.
0: You know, my, my work in film, uh, films tend to find me. I, I don't outwardly really reach out. Uh, it was uh, when, With Mystic River, I was involved in two film projects. One was a Matthew Barney film called River Fundament. And uh, then I, as I was working at the Pequot Museum, I started to work with some folks called the Upstander Project. And at first, it wasn't about the film that they were making, The Dawnland. Uh, they, they teach um, genocide education, genocide studies. They teach teachers how to teach about genocide. And they had been focusing on Rwanda, you know, uh, with the film that they had previously made called Coexist. And the learning director, Michi Lesser, felt that it was just not proper to be here in America teaching about genocide without talking about indigenous populations and the genocides that happen here. And so... She's listening to uh, NPR one day, and she hears about something that's going to be historic, which was uh, the Wabanaki Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was the first Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the United States, government sanctioned uh, about the forced child removal of Native children uh, in the state of Maine. Um, This is something that uh, is a story that any Native community across the country, as well as Canada, and what spurred uh, the Wabanaki TRC was actually the TRC that had happened in Canada, uh, as a result of residential schools and, and once again, forced taking of children. And uh, in the state of Maine, you know, even after the Indian Child Welfare Act, the removal of ch- Native children from our communities was at a rate, uh, at the worst, 19 times uh, the national average. Um, and even in current times, uh, you know, with the TRC revealing uh, things, we're still at a probably four to five times the national average as far as Native children being removed. And a lot of it is, is due to cultural differences lack of understanding and and other factors that go into it. And the way our cultures are built uh, in that uh, our communities are traditionally uh, migrant communities. You know, we, we, you know, would migrate down to uh, the mouths of rivers to fish uh, during part of the season. We would migrate into the woods to hunt during the winter traditionally. And when we were forced to live in one place for the entire year, um, you know, the uh, market economy takes over. And so what happens is Passamquoddy start to have to make uh, money, you know, dollars, and uh, can't really subsist as uh, we traditionally did. And so, you know, selling baskets, uh, ashplant baskets and things of that sort became part of it, um, but also harvesting the agricultural crops. Uh, the Pasper Quality Tribe owns one of the largest blueberry farms, potato picking, other things, you know, so the if you were, were a child on our community, um, it was not uncommon for mom and dad to go someplace to go do some migrant work uh, for part of the year and to leave the child with. Grandmother, grandfather, the community raises children in uh, much uh, different than um, than the state would look at it. But they see mom and dad not there, and they would call it neglect, and so child removal happens. And the sad part is, there is none of us as Native people that are removed from this process. It was not my story uh, when it came to Don Land, but I am not unattached from it. You know, I grew up with all of uh, the folks, so uh, I began working with the standard. Project uh, On the Upstander Academy at UConn. And uh, during my time with them, um, they invited me to an early, early rough cut. They, I, was, I was invited into the process in the post-production. They had already spent years collecting footage. And they invited me to their very first rough cut. And when I got there, at first I was, I kind of backed off, you know, I was like, okay, you know, it's not the first time I've been approached by a non-native filmmaker, um, and wanting to bring me into a project. And, uh, I just wasn't sure at the time, you know, I was like, yeah, do I, do I really want to put my feet into this project? Um, but when I saw that first rough cut, what I saw was that uh, Adam and Mishi and the other filmmaker, Ben, had spent their time really doing everything right. They had come to our communities, they sat down, they listened, they turned the cameras off when they were asked to, which is a very tough thing for a documentary filmmaker to do, you know, and they made made connections and were trusted. And what I mean by that is I saw things in that rough cut, testimonies that they were giving to Adam, Ben, and Mishy uh, that, honestly, I, some of these folks I grew up with, and I'd never heard them say these words out publicly ever in my life.
1: Yeah, actually, when you said earlier that communities – tend to have two two ways of educating the things that they say to the public and the things that they don't say to the public i mean some of the things are just not even just about being part of a community it's about your own hurt and torture and who wants to really talk about that. So there are so many layers that I think that this film just brought out so beautifully.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, that's truly what happened. Uh, You know, so when I saw that, what I, what happened to me is I kind of had a a turning moment, you know, as far as my involvement in the project, I I said, I looked and I said, you know, these folks are, are trusted by the people that I love, you know, like just really deeply trusted to the point that they're telling truths that, they wouldn't tell normally otherwise anywhere and not only doing that they're doing it on camera mm-hmm. um, you know that was an amazing thing that spoke to me about who uh you know the uh, the upstander project was and who these folks were and how they, their process was working and then from then on i said okay I have to be involved you know so there was really there was no explicit role uh, that they hired me into and they never hired me by the way Uh, one of the things I insisted on uh, working with them doing this is uh, while they would pay for expenses I I didn't want a paycheck I didn't want to get paid because this was working on a documentary telling some very very hard truths about uh, people that you know had been removed as children and what they went through they were all people I loved and I couldn't see myself you know making a paycheck uh, off of the telling of their pain. If I was going to do this, I was going to put my heart and soul into it. And that meant, you know, forgetting about money, right? So I just did whatever was asked. Uh, I helped them raise money. Uh, and when they had questions about things uh, and or, or little details that were added into the film and the way uh, talking about Native storytelling you know, trying to use the use of language. So I'll give you an example of, of one of the, the little tiny pieces that I was able to add, you know, to the film. During uh, the first rough cut, they were calling the communities by the English names and by the, you know, the native names, and there was kind of back and forth. It was a little confusing. And what I suggested was, you know, don't use the English names. You know, use the, the community's traditional names that they use for themselves. Uh, and when you create a map, uh, do the same thing as well. That way, you know, when somebody's watching, they have to learn a little bit of our language, you know, People can look, at you know, Mainers can look at that map. They understand. They know exactly where these communities are, but they see new words up there. And all of a sudden, they're learning another layer of our culture. And also the music. Uh, Jennifer Kreisberg was the composer. The film was nominated for two Emmys, and one of them was for the music and largely due to Jennifer Kreisberg. But I was also the uh, advisor on uh, the traditional music and uh, helped Uh, went went with Jennifer to go and record uh, traditional singers up in our communities uh, to add to the film. So when they introduced the communities in the film. You hear songs from those communities, you know. So there's sort of another layer that that gets added to the storytelling there, you know. So those were the little things that that I could do, you know. So I spent three years with them, watching rough cuts, uh, you know, giving my notes, hearing from the other community members, and eventually we finally came around to what we, we we all had a shared vision. And, and my my concern always at the beginning was uh, I want the film to really give the voice of the communities and make sure that people. Understand Understood those voices, you know, and, and and uplift them. And it was something that I, I did out of love. And then it turned even more amazing. PBS decided that they were going to pick it up and they were going to show it on independent lens. It turned out for that season to be the most watched independent documentary uh, of PBS's season that year. Uh, 2.1 million viewers when it did show. You know, what that did is it qualified us for, you know, the Emmys. And so we were nominated for, for two Emmys, one of them for music and one of them for research. Uh, The research Emmy, you know, we ended up winning. And that's the the really amazing part because the film was created as a learning tool. You know, it was never about me. It was never, even even the filmmakers, for them, it was never about them. It was really about getting the story right. And the impact that it's had, that is tremendously rewarding. The hope is that this begins the conversation. Why is this continuing? The Indian Child Welfare Act was passed in 1978, yet it continues. And what can we do to stop it? What can we do to preserve Native families and preserve our cultures and to stop the intergenerational trauma that has resulted, you know, from uh, the force taking of children?
1: Right. and these ideas are resonant today as much as they were in the 70s, sadly. And I just, I really commend our listeners to find Dawnland. There are viewing parties online. There are ways to get it because I think if we're thinking about systemic injustice, it's not um, a one flavor. it this is, this is a part I didn't really think about. And I will say I've been thinking it, about it nonstop since seeing this film and issues of you know, white privilege and white fr- fragility come in. It's really, it's a fascinating film. So um, kudos to you and the entire team for that. And I'm, I'm sure that this is going to be something that you're very proud of, um, along with all your other engagements with the community. So um, congratulations on that. So I guess one thing I would want to close with is just thoughts along the way. You might not have thought that becoming a singer and going around the world was a big step, but that's a a huge kind of off of the beaten path step. What would you say to anybody kind of contemplating any... Any big stuff like that?
0: Well, leaving Dartmouth was a hard choice, um, you know, and, and I, uh, I got down to myself about it. That really slowed down my success is because I limited myself because I didn't have my Dartmouth degree. And uh, one thing I would love to tell anybody that is at Dartmouth, you know, the, the connections that you're making at Dartmouth are tremendously valuable, uh, more valuable than you're ever going to know, because it's the success of the, my fellow classmates that uh, I saw graduate and I saw their lives, you know, diverge and and go on to do amazing things that led me to re-engage my own self-confidence where I had lost it for a while. Um, So don't limit yourself. That's the one thing I think that held me back was that I was myself. No matter what, I I wouldn't change the road because of where I'm at now. Uh, But if I were to, you know, tell myself something back then, it would be don't forget about yourself. Don't forget to love yourself and don't ever stop believing in yourself because that's how success is made. If you don't love yourself, it's hard to love others and it's hard to find out what you're really all about. The important part is not when we're down to allow ourselves to kick ourselves, but to pick ourselves back up. I had a few hard moments, but coming out of it was really about self-confidence.
1: Yeah. Well, I think those messages of love yourself and pick yourself up, they could have been spoken by Mr. Rogers. And as we know, Mr. Rogers came to Dartmouth. But he didn't finish Dartmouth. So I feel like, you know, we'll we'll keep you. We'll keep Fred and we'll keep you. And so anyway, thank you so much, Chris, for being part of this conversation. And I think it's just great that you've been connected and we hope to you know, keep hearing your stories.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Leslie. I look forward to uh, seeing you again someday.
1: That was Chris Newell, proud member of the Passamaquoddy community and the executive director and senior partner to Wabanaki Nations at the Abbey Museum in Bar Harbor, Maine. There, the voices of the Wabanaki, or people of the first light, are centered within the exhibits and programming around their history and culture. Take a look and listen at Abbey Museum, A B B E Also, check out the film Dawnland at Dawnland.org. And join me, Leslie Jennings Rowley on the next episode of Roads Taken.